Welcome to Dog Training Disrupted by Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. Adopting a dog over the age of six months is rewarding and fun. When initially integrating dogs into a family, we can expect some challenges. As with humans, change in eating habits is a common reaction to stress caused by change in environment or physical ailments. When physically healthy dogs who are adapting well to their new environment refuse to eat, it can be scary, a bit of a mystery for many adopters. Fortunately, the solution may simply require logic, creativity, and the ability to think like a dog. And that's the first topic for this episode. I then talk about the decompression period. What exactly is that and do we need it? I then briefly touch upon a study done in the UK on the behavior of street dogs versus purebred dogs who were in a good home from puppyhood. And check out this new music clip from Brian John Harwood. The song is called Good Boy, and it takes us through the life of his dog. Brian is making waves in the country music scene, and we are grateful for the opportunity to have this clip. Yeah, I wish I could hear what you're thinking. You can't say the words, but buddy, I'm listening. Just know that. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and successful dogologist for over three decades. The first topic on the agenda is this adopted dog not eating problem, which seems to come up a fair bit. Maybe things just come up once you start thinking about them. But uh, it always reminds me back early in my career I had a a client who I recently adopted their dog, Sophie, and she refused to eat from her bowl. My client assumed Sophie was nervous and tried hand feeding, which was successful, but Sophie continued to refuse to eat from the bowl. So the success with the hand feeding told us Sophie was not hesitant to eat or nervous of human contact, which was also evident by her friendly greeting upon my arrival. So as I watched Sophie, I thought perhaps she was bothered by her long floppy ears touching the sides of the bowl. I suggested switching from a bowl to a plate. This was successful. Almost. After consuming the portion on the half of the plate closest to her, she stepped back, refusing to eat the remaining food. I suggested turning the plate around so that her ears didn't drag across the dirty plate. And this worked really well. Well, for Sophie, my clients felt it was a little odd to be turning Sophie's plate around for her. In fact, I remember them saying, really, she is quite the princess. So I then suggested moving the plate away from the wall. And this allowed her to access the other side of the plate on her own. And alternatively, they could switch to a rectangular shaped plate. And this solved the problem. So it's important to be creative and to really think about why the dog is doing a behavior. So I'm going to talk about community dogs. And community dogs uh, survived, commonly, a lot of them survive on scraps provided by humans. Uh, a lot of them, humans on vacation or ones that own restaurants. Uh, they often like people food. And they can be surprisingly picky. Many of these dogs prefer meat and cheese and they won't even eat bread. And they'll cherry pick through kibble when they get into a home and they have the option of kibble or other types of food. There's so many types of food out there. But often they just won't eat anything, preferring to go hungry. So it's important to creatively combine dog food with people food. And that's sort of a good way to meet in the middle. Uh, And it's common for these dogs to like one type of dog food one week and then suddenly poo-poo it the next week. So it's, it's a good thing that there's lots of different types, although that can get a little frustrating. But as you work your way through it and combine it with the people food, 
uh, it, it commonly works really well. And of course, it's important to consult with your veterinarian or certified canine nutritionist because uh, you don't want to run into allergic reactions or have any unsafe feeding practices. And it's important to ensure that they get all the required nutrients. Thinking like your dog is also important for street dogs. Many adopters are surprised how easily dogs who have lived independently and survived on the street or have fended for themselves in busy cities integrate into a new lifestyle in a home. Well, their puppyhood provided them with real-life socialization, so they're accustomed to ever-changing environments and to busyness and to having to adapt, and that makes adapting to a new home often easier for them than for dogs that were raised in more controlled or sheltered environments. So dogs who survived on the street can feel vulnerable when eating, and this causes them to be hyper-aware of their surroundings. While living on the street, they may have taken their food to a quieter area or avoided eating when other dogs were present. So upon bringing these dogs into my care, I would feed them in a quiet environment with no other dogs, if that seemed more comfortable for them, or in a room that had multiple exits. You know, exit out to a different room or exit to a yard, and then they didn't feel trapped. Or perhaps I even fed them outside in a uh, quiet, safe, secured area. It's common for them to prefer to eat with their back against the wall, so I often would put the food bowl a few feet away from the wall or the fence line, and that allows them to face outward when eating. Dogs who lived outside their entire life, whether on the street or in a community or on a chain or as an outdoor guard dog, they can be distrusting of people offering them food. So by teaching basic commands at easy, positive times without relying on food, And applying these commands to the outdoor feeding routine and then transferring these commands and that routine to the indoor, we provide a calm, clear, consistent routine that provides comfort, decreases stress, and increases our bond. This is very important. This is how cognitive behavioral therapy works. We need to establish transferable skills at the easy times. And if food is what's causing a problem, we can't rely on that. We need to rely on creating a transferable skill with other rewards and other situations that are positive and then apply it to the food. I'm going to talk about dogs with conventional upbringing. So many of these dogs started out life in a good home prior to adoption, such as with a family who had good intentions or in foster care with a reputable rescue organization. It's common for caregivers to incorporate basic commands such as sit, stay, okay, into a feeding routine during puppyhood. This feeding routine, when transferred to the new home, can provide clarity and comfort. If the dog automatically sits when they are triggered that it's feeding time, such as the food cupboard opening, we can safely assume they were taught a feeding routine, and some dogs won't even eat if this routine is not followed. If possible, ask the previous caregiver which words they used, as it can be confusing to a dog to hear sit, wait, go, when they were previously taught, sit, stay, okay. So don't always think about teaching them something new. Think about learning what they know. And maybe they're not eating because that wasn't incorporated. If contacting the previous caregiver is not an option, then it is easy to learn by trial and error and the process of elimination. The dog will let us know when we get it right. So I hope this opened your mind to uh, thinking logically, and thinking about how rescued dogs think or the past of even a a dog that was raised in a conventional home. A dog not eating is not always due to a huge amount of stress. 
And that brings me to my next topic, a decompression period. Decompression period assumes that dogs are going through a large amount of stress. Sometimes they're not. So I'm going to ask, actually, your thoughts on the decompression period. It's it's sort of a new thing. I'm not really sure if it's just an offshoot of the three-day, three-week, three-month meme. Well, for lack of a better word, it's a, it's a meme. You see it all over social media. And that can be a recipe for disaster, depending on the dog. Uh, but I'll that, that, that topics for a different episode. But it is human nature to decompress after a long journey or the completion of, for example, a project like graduating. So for dogs who come directly from a crappy situation or traveled long distances to get to their new safe home, it's just simply human nature and logic to allow them some downtime to decompress. In 2019, I think it was, I organized a trip with another rescuer from Vancouver uh, and I'm, I was in Regina at the time, and we brought up five dogs from Costa Rica. We originally went to Toronto, and that other rescuer went on with one of the dogs to Vancouver, and I stayed in Toronto, the remainder of the dogs. And I had scheduled it that way as a, well, as a decompression, because uh, we had only had two nights in Costa Rica. So flew all the way down, stayed two nights in Costa Rica, and flew all the way back. The dog's flight and travel and paperwork and stuff was done previously and through rescue organizations, in particular El Refugio, which is a great organization. And they actually did a video on this whole trip. So if you want to see it, I will include that in the show notes and you can go to El Refugio on their YouTube and see it there as well. But it was funny because we had a couple layovers coming up and and the whole adventure was exhausting, but the, the dogs did fine and they didn't really need any decompression time. They just started playing and having a, a great time. So a couple of days later, I went on to Regina with a few of the dogs. I had um, homed one of them in Toronto. So I arrived, I had a layover in Calgary, and then I arrived at 3 a.m. to freezing uh, temperatures in Regina. And again, I needed to decompress. One of the dogs went straight to their new home right away, right from the airport, and fit in like nothing had happened at all. And same with the one I kept with me. Uh, that's a dog I currently have. So she just just fit right in and didn't really need a lot of decompression. The one that was in Toronto needed a bit of time to acclimatize to having no doggy companions, which is a little bit sad. But uh, her new mom took her to the dog park every day. Yeah, right away. She just took her to the dog park because she had come from a place where there were lots of dogs. She was in uh, a really good rescue organization, El Refugio. So she was used to having dogs around her. So off they went to the dog park and it was cold, which was more of a deterrent than anything, but she did really well. All of these dogs actually had started out life in a, in a shitty street life situation. They had had a lot of change and long journeys and they adapted really well. So my point is the need to decompress really depends on the dog's perception of the situation and their previous life and experiences, just like people. Of course, health is the first concern, but if dogs are healthy and rested up, we can begin to provide calm, clear direction. And this is where upper dogology shines. It's less about training and more about developing a language to create a bond and a way of communicating. I recently saw an Instagram post where a trainer stated, training can wait, let them decompress. This implies this trainer views training as stressful and simply teaching right from wrong. Then again, she is a positive reinforcement trainer and the goal of conditioning methods, which uh, positive reinforcement training falls under the conditioning 
method umbrella. That's exactly what it does, which is why it's great for puppies. Standard positive reinforcement training may not be a good idea with rescued dogs, but upper dogology is. So again, I'm opening up that platform to send me your thoughts, and I'm eager to hear different interpretations and experiences. I'm just going to finish up on a quick note about a scientific study that was released from the UK, and this study focused on the likeliness of aggression and behavioral issues in rescued and adopted dogs, mostly from unconventional backgrounds, such as street dogs, compared to the likelihood of aggression and behavioral issues in dogs with conventional puppyhood. And they wanted the opinions of veterinarians versus the opinions of dog owners. So they interviewed uh, quite a number of different ones, different veterinarians and different dog owners, and compared their answers. Vets were more likely to say street dogs had a higher percentage of behaviors associated with aggression and anxiety. Dog owners were less likely to say that. Of course, there's factors that surround that, such as the stress caused by a vet clinic, since puppies with conventional upbringings probably got acclimatized or socialized during puppyhood to vet clinics, whereas street dogs were probably mostly not likely in vet clinics and possibly not even inside a building. The main takeaway for me with this study was that vets recognize that there's a real problem with behavioral issues with street dogs, and that owners want to adopt these dogs, and they want to try. And owners are successfully doing that. I know they are because they're my clients every day for years. So why are vets not open-minded to learning methods beyond conditioning methodologies? Maybe they are. I mean, I have veterinarians for clients, and I have the support of many veterinarians, yet there are still many who refuse to step outside the comfort of mainstream dog training for fear of being shunned by their peers and colleagues, or they want to find a solution themselves and they don't want to learn it from someone else, or maybe they just simply don't understand the benefits of cognitive behavioral therapy for multiple species. I I can't answer that question. But if you have an opinion or a suggestion on this, again, feel free to follow me on Instagram and DM me. Talk to your veterinarian. Ask them if they know of CBT and are they interested in learning about it for dogs. Trainers and behaviorists and those teaching courses on dog training look to veterinarians for solutions. Excuse me, look to veterinarians for solutions, probably even more so than influential trainers. It's important to reach these veterinarians. If you have not heard my recent interview on the Vet Blast with Dr. Adam Chrisman or on the Animal Innovation Show, you can find these links along with the links to the scientific study I mentioned earlier in the show notes. So big thanks to you, my listeners, for your support. My podcast has reached over 10,000 downloads. I'm very happy about that. I hope it's making a difference. Please follow up for Dogology on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And on LinkedIn, I'm Billy Groom. Please share your favorite episodes from this podcast and leave a rating or review on your favorite ones. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email or DM me. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again to Brian John Harwood from Ontario and to the Jeff Murdoch Band from Saskatchewan for the music clips. Enjoy your learning journey. 
yeah, I wish I could hear what you're thinking. You can't say the words, but buddy, I'm listening. Just know that I'll never stay mad. You're still my good boy. 